0: This episode is brought to you by the members and donors of the Best of the Left podcast. For information on membership, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Bill Moyer's Journal, The Tom Hartman Program, This American Life, and Rachel Maddow.
1: we can cover the story of baby Alex who was uh, considered by his uh, insurance company or the Rocky Mountain Health Plans where when they were trying to get insurance for baby Alex considered him too fat and they flat out told him that, uh, the family that. It would be funny if they called the baby up. They're like, I'm sorry, sir, but uh, Alex, you're too fat and we can't cover you. So they called his dad and uh, let him know And then his dad happened to be a reporter uh, and, and news anchor. So he got a little bit of media attention behind it, and then everybody was outraged and saying, come on, it's a baby, okay? <laughs> we can't put it on a treadmill, right? So and then finally uh, that uh, Rocky Mountain Health Plan said, okay, okay, no mouse, you win. Uh, we'll cover uh, this unacceptably fat baby. And in fact, we'll change our policy. It was, of course, a flaw that we had overlooked until there was giant media attention uh, that uh, we're not covering babies that are in the 95th percentile in weight and above, okay? Again, the kids can't do anything about it. They were born that way. All the kid was drinking was breast milk. That's it. That's all it was feeding, right? Well, now we have the exact opposite. Uh, Two-year-old Aislinn Bates has been denied coverage because she is too skinny. I'm not kidding. Uh, United Healthcare Golden Rule, a very ironically labeled health insurance company, has said that, uh, has told that we are, and these quotes are unbelievable. Uh, "Quote: We are unable to provide coverage for Aislinn because her height and weight do not meet our company standards." Uh, I'm sorry that she did not meet your company standards as a two-year-old. Okay. And then they come out and admit it. Uh, uh, they say that uh, 89. A, a spokesman for United Healthcare Golden Rule said that 89% of the people who apply for insurance get it, uh, and that uh, insurers have their uh, proprietary height and weight guidelines that they can't share so they deny kids if they don't meet certain height and weight guidelines and they say well we cover 89 percent of the people 11 percent, well that's a sad day for you if you got kids that are too skinny or too fat uh, well those might be the people that might need insurance and they're like exactly and that's why we don't cover them now if you're trying to make a profit and you don't want to give uh, insurance to people who actually might need it, well, maybe that's the way you go. God bless capitalism, right? (laughs) And i got no problems with capitalism when you're selling sneakers. But when you're selling health insurance, and if you don't give health insurance to people and they die, well, then we got a different issue, isn't it? So now, I'm serious, I'm asking all the people out there, what if you have a baby or a child, in this case she's two, that is considered by these uh, companies to not meet company standards. What do you do then? I mean, isn't the whole point of insurance to cover you? Isn't that the whole point of the insurance? Uh, if, if they're not going to cover you when you need it, and these kids, kids don't even need it yet. They just might need it because they're too skinny or too fat. Uh, and by the way, somebody's got to be, right? Somebody's got to be in the 95th percentile uh, uh, or the 5th percentile. So, all those people are out of luck, right? So, don't have babies like that, all right? Watch out. They're not grown adults that can do something about their weight. And if, if they're only selling insurance to people that they think are perfectly healthy and will stay perfectly healthy, then what's the point of having insurance?
2: I don't like the place I'm in, headspace within the hard
3: But to rest my soul, and I don't get this, and I know why. You see, sometimes things are just beyond
4: control, but I don't mind. But I'm not surprised to find it you
5: do. I'm not surprised to find it You know from the news that early next week the senate finance committee is expected to vote on its version of health care reform and therein lies another story of money and politics polls show the overwhelming majority of americans favor a nonprofit alternative like medicare that would give the private health insurance industry some competition but if so many americans and the president himself want that public option how come we're not getting one because the medicine has been poisoned from day one, in part because of that same revolving door that Congresswoman Kaptur and Simon Johnson were just talking about. Movers and shakers rotate between government and the lucrative private sector at a speed so dizzying they forget who they're working for. Our plan does not include a public option. Take a close look at that woman sitting behind Montana Senator Max Baucus. He's the Democrat who's the chairman of the Finance Committee. Liz Fowler is her name, and now get this. She used to work for WellPoint, the largest health insurer in the country. She was vice president of public policy, and now she's working for the very committee with the most power to give her old company and the entire industry exactly what they want. Higher profits, and no competition from alternative nonprofit coverage that could lower cost and premiums. I'm not making this up. Here's another little eye opener. The woman who was Balcas' top health advisor before he hired Liz Fowler, her name is Michelle Easton. Why did she leave the committee? To go to work, where else? At a firm representing the same company Liz Fowler worked for, Wellpoint. As lobbyist. It's the old Washington shell game. Lobbyist out, lobbyist in. And it's why they always win. They've been plowing this ground for years, but with the broad legislative agenda of the Obama White House, it's more fertile than ever. The health insurance industry alone has six lobbyists for every member of Congress, and more than 500 of them or former congressional staff members. Just to be certain Congress sticks with the program, they've been showering megabucks all over Capitol Hill. From the beginning, they wanted to make sure that the bill that comes out of the Finance Committee next week puts for-profit health insurance companies first by forcing the uninsured to buy medical policies from them. Money not only talks, it writes the prescriptions. In just the last few months, the healthcare industry has spent $380 million on lobbying, advertising and campaign contributions. And a million and a half of it went to, don't hold your breath, Finance Committee Chairman Baucus, who said he saw a lot to like in two proposed public options, but voted no. My job is to put together a bill that gets 60 votes. Now, I can count. And no one has been able to show me how we can count up to 60 votes with a public option in the bill. Of course not. They can't get 60 votes. Not when the people who want a public alternative can't possibly scrape up the millions of dollars Vaucus has received from the health sector during his political career. Over the last two decades, the current members of the Senate Finance Committee you're looking at them, have collected nearly $50 million from the health sector, a long-term investment that's now paying off like a busted slot machine. Not that we should be surprised. A century ago, muckraking journalists reported that large corporations and other wealthy interests virtually owned the Senate, using bribery, fraud, and sometimes blackmail to get their way. Jokes were made about the senator from Union Pacific, or the senator from Standard Oil. This fellow in particular was out to break their grip. His name was David Graham Phillips. And one day in 1906, readers of Cosmopolitan magazine opened its March issue to discover the first of nine articles by Phillips titled, The Treason of the Senate. He wrote, Treason is a strong word, but not too strong, rather too weak. To characterize the situation in which the senate is the eager resourceful indefatigable agent of interests as hostile to the american people as any invading army could be the public outrage provoked by phillips and other muckrakers contributed to the passage of the constitutional amendment providing for the direct election of senators who until then were elected by easily bought off state legislators of course Like water seeking its own level, big money finds its way around every obstacle and was soon back up to its old tricks, filling the pockets of friendly politicians. Today, none dare call it treason. So, how about calling it what it is? A friendly takeover of government, a leveraged buyout of democracy. Outrageous? You bet. But don't just get mad, get busy.
6: 2004 election campaign, Dennis Kucinich argued that there should be a Medicare Part E that, that uh, everybody should be allowed that, that Medicare should simply be extended to everybody. Now that at that time it was basically single payer health insurance, and you know it's been it's been kicked around the Hudson Institute apparently or Hoover Institute one, one of the one of the think tanks used that phrase again to describe a single payer health plan um, some some months ago or perhaps a year ago. And uh, a couple of months ago, I wrote an op-ed for Common Dreams in which I said, you know, f- we're not going to get the the single-payer health care. We're not going to get single-payer health insurance. We need it. We should have it. It should be what we're working for. But it ain't going to happen because, uh, you know, the influence of money is so great, is so pervasive right now in our political arena that we're not going to get it. So why don't, you know, th- th- why don't we simply stop using the phrase public option and start using the phrase Medicare Part E. See, here's the problem. Most most people don't know what public option means. I mean, there were there were people showing up at teabag rallies who dropped the L in the word on their signs. We don't want no pubic option. I mean, they, they're clueless. Public option, what does that mean? Does it have something to do with executions in the public square? I don't know, it sounds ominous. Why try to sell something? Why Not only why try to sell something, why create something from, from scratch? Why have a thousand-page piece of legislation that creates a whole brand-new government health insurance program when we already have one? It's there. It works. It's called Medicare. There's nobody who doesn't know what it is. Even the low-information voters—those people that are referred to by the news media charitably as as uh, moderates, middle-of-the-road voters—really what they are is low-information voters. They're people who don't have a clue. They're not paying attention. They, you know, they they watch the network news thirty minutes, you know, tw- twenty minutes after commercials uh, every night, and then you know, with the obligatory ten minutes devoted to things like Balloon Boy or Balloon Girl, uh, you know, who the <laughs> California, uh, what is it, Miss America wants their boobs back or something. I mean, you know, th- those kinds of stories. They, these low information voters, they're clueless about what's going on. And so the Democratic Party has been spectacularly incompetent over the years. At reaching out to these low-information voters and giving them information and saying to them, you know, here's here's an option. Here's how it could or should be done. I mean, they've just been spectacularly incompetent at this. The Democratic Party, the Democratic Party has just just totally failed in that. I mean, consider SCHIP. This is the uh, State Children's Health Insurance Program. Right, it's a program. A, a, a program where the federal government is helping states provide health insurance to children in low-income families. One in six kids in America lives in poverty. And so the S-CHIP program is like, let's reach out to the S-CHIP. It sounds like something when you're walking through the cow pasture, you want to avoid stepping in. There's a marvelous federal program to make sure that that low-income Particularly seniors, people living on a fixed income, people who are on social security, that if they're hit with a really cold winter, particularly in the northeast or across the northern tourist states, they're hit with a particularly cold winter and their heating bill goes from, you know, two hundred dollars a month to three hundred dollars a month, goes up, and they don't and they're not gonna see a commensurate increase in social security and they don't have savings and they're already having to make choices between, you know, food or vitamins or excuse me, food or medicine. Or maybe food or vitamins for that matter. There's this great program to provide heating assistance to them. So what did the Democrats name it? They named it "lie heap." Yeah, that's that's something I can get behind. I really want to vote for that. Yep, let's 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 promote lie heap. Come on, Democrats, you can do better than this. Lie heap. Like you're going to lie in a heap. A heap of what? Well, it's an acronym. It stands for Low Income Heating Assistance Program. Come on. The Republicans have known for years how to make this stuff work and how to do it right. They have the Healthy Forest Initiative that cuts down forests. They got the Clear Skies Initiative that increases the amount of pollution. They've got the No Child Left Behind that leaves behind huge swaths of our educational uh, infrastructure and, and so many of our kids. I mean, the Republicans have figured out how to message this stuff. Back two years ago, when it was obvious to me that the Democrats had completely lost track of how to message politically, I, on the air, wrote a book. I think it was the first book that was ever written on the air called Cracking the Code, And we went through framing, we went through subliminal suggestion, we went through hypnotic trance, learning trances. We went through all the techniques that you can use to capture a person's attention and convey a message to them quickly. We talked about memes, thought viruses, all these various things that would cause people to go, oh, that's what you're talking about. I wrote this for the Democrats and some of them actually paid attention. But they still weren't paying attention. They're going, we need a public option. So a couple months ago, I wrote an op-ed for Common Dreams saying, quit calling it a public option, you guys. Call it Medicare Part E -E for everyone. Rebrand the public option. I know, you know, like I said, Congressman Kucinich back five years ago said, why don't we simply extend Medicare to everyone? We'll have a single payer health care system. We can call it Medicare Part E. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. This is not a single payer healthcare system. This is just let's ma- let's allow anybody well, it is a single payer health care system, but let's allow anybody to buy into it. Therefore it becomes an option. And anybody is us, we're the public. <laughs>
4: So far this hour, we've illustrated just some of the main things that are driving up healthcare costs. And truthfully, putting this show together over the last few months, it's been hard not to get sort of depressed. Not only do the problems seem like they're built into the very foundation of our healthcare system, but the health reform debate that's going on right now in Washington doesn't seem to be about cutting costs at all. Democrats and Republicans are arguing over who's going to get insurance and the public option and how it's paid for, not to mention death panels and abortion. And there's really not much discussion about how to fix the healthcare system as a whole to slow the runaway costs that threaten our entire economy. The stuff we've been talking about all this hour. And so to end our hour, we invited somebody who's been following this very closely in Washington, D.C., Susan Denser. She's been reporting on the politics and economics of health care since the 1980s for Newsweek and then later for U.S. News and World Report. She's seen HMOs come and go. She's seen Hillary Clinton's health care plan come and go. And now she's monitoring the latest attempt to remake the health care system as the editor of a policy journal called Health Affairs. And I'll be frank, when I sat down with her to talk about what is actually in the bill's She totally blew my mind. We'll get to that part in a minute, but first, the actual detail of the bills when it comes to cutting costs. There is some stuff in these bills that addresses rising costs.
7: If you are a glass-half-full kind of person, you look at it this way. There are some measures in the bills that would give the Secretary of Health and Human Services, among others, enormous authority to experiment with new ways to deliver health care. This
4: doesn't mean little experimental projects, Stenzer says. The head of HHS will have czar-like powers to change very basic things in how the system works by changing how Medicare pays doctors and hospitals. So, for example, Medicare could stop paying fee-for-service, that system where doctors get money for every procedure that they do. It could bundle doctors and patients into groups to cut inefficiency and waste. The bills also set up a Medicare commission, which could do the kind of restructuring and cutting that would be too hot politically for Congress to do itself. Now, the weaknesses of these bills, Denzer says, is that they don't force the head of HHS or anybody in the government to make any changes at all. There are no deadlines. And the amount that's going to get saved if everything goes perfectly, according to the Congressional Budget Office, is much smaller than healthcare costs are gonna rise. But the idea is that Medicare is such a huge part of the healthcare system. It pays for a fourth of all the healthcare in the country. It's the biggest insurer in America. Changes made in Medicare will be adopted by others.
7: So the notion is to really create a platform for gradual change,
4: and, and as part of the impulse behind this, is basically to say, like, we are not going to agree in the Senate and the House on like the exact ways to cut costs and exactly which things to do. And so, like, let's just agree. Somebody's going to do that. It's going to be, uh, the, you know, the the head of the Department of Health and Human Services and some of these other things that you're saying. But let's not discuss that here.
7: That yes, that's part of it, and the the other realistic piece of this is if you've tried to build all of this into the bill right now if you said we're going to make sweeping changes in the system we're going to completely pay you in a totally different way we're going to take you doctors who've been out in the hinterlands collecting your fee-for-service monies and basically restructure the system in such a way that you might have to live your life really differently just try putting that into a bill that gets everybody to accept it. You can't.
4: Susan Denser told me that there are people in the administration who are deeply involved in the details of how to cut healthcare costs, and she talks to them. But she says they don't talk about this stuff much publicly for similar reasons. It's a political loser. It's a tough sell to say to people, not only will you get less healthcare, you'll be better off. Okay, now I'm gonna tell you the thing that Susan Denser says that totally shocked me. She told me that for the first time since she's been covering healthcare decades ago, all the major players in healthcare, care, the hospitals, the insurance companies, the doctors, she says they are all for the first time agreeing that something has to change. And she says this is the biggest political achievement made in health reform so far.
7: Almost all the stakeholders in health care have been at the table and are talking about all of this. They know that the system cannot persist the way it is, that we've got to do things differently. We have got to get more value out of the dollars spent on health care.
4: How recent is that agreement? Is that that because of Obama and his people saying, okay, here's what we're going to do?
7: Not really. Uh, We would would probably be at this juncture no matter who had been elected president because of what was happening to the cost over the course of this decade.
4: Right. There's just a growing consensus like it's going up so fast. Well,
7: health insurance premiums went up 130%. From the year 2000 to now, two years ago, I was talking to a, an insurance executive from a, one of the leading insurance companies, and I said, okay, so what's the situation like? And draw me the analogy with the threat alert system, you know, red alert, <laughs> orange, yeah. green, whatever. He said, we're on red alert. We're on red alert.
4: The system the is insurance falling companies? apart. Yes. I'm just surprised to hear the insurance companies are on red alert because they are still making nice profits, you know?
7: But they can see the handwriting on the wall. They see the system crumbling. And they also see, they, they, they understand the pressures that will ensue if the, if things get really out of hand. I mean, just imagine if we had had 100 million people uninsured, yeah. what kind of pressures there would have been for, say, a single-payer system. Yeah. You know, they know that. Uh, they they think the only solution now for preserving any part of the system as a private system is to stop the bleeding now.
4: And so in addition to the health care reform happening in Washington, Susan Denser says there is a second reform that's happening right now all over the country. Hospitals and healthcare care providers and state legislatures coming up with their own ways to restructure and contain costs. And that's what gives her hope, that things are so hopeless for every player across the board that a consensus is actually taking hold that things can't continue as they have. And she sees people and organizations taking action.
3: of the House, Nancy Pelosi, as I say, throwing down the gauntlet today, saying that whether the Senate likes it or not, whether Maine's in the spotlight, Senator Olympia Snow likes it or not, whether conservative Democrats like it or not, whether or not it gets called Nazism or fascism or whatever scares you on right-wing television, when all's said and done, there is going to be a public option in the final health care bill. At least Nancy Pelosi says so, at least in the House. She said if the Senate wants to take the public option away, they're going to have a fight on their hands.
7: The uh, need uh, for a public option is very clear, and as I have said, our House bill uh, will have a public option. If you're going to mandate that people must buy insurance, why would you throw them into the lion's den uh, of insurance industry without uh, uh, some leverage with a uh, a, a public option. In the House, where Nancy
3: Pelosi is in charge, the Democratic majority is so big that they can not only pass a bill without a single Republican vote, they can pass a bill even if 39 Democrats join every single Republican in voting against it. So is there going to be a public option in the House? Uh, I don't bet, but if I did bet, I would bet that there would be. In the Senate, Republicans are expected to filibuster, meaning they will try to block the Senate from even getting to vote on a health reform bill. and that- that is the real nitty-gritty single factor that may actually determine what kind of health reform we get, and especially whether or not it includes the controversial public option. It all comes down to this. Will Republicans block an up or down vote on health reform? The Republican minority in the Senate is so small that they can't block the vote on their own. There are only 40 Republican senators, and it would take 41 votes to block the legislation. This means for this all-important procedural thing, Republicans can only block a vote on health reform if they get help in doing so from at least one Democrat. And that's never happened before. All the procedural rigmarole on health reform can be hard to follow, and we've been following it for months now, but it comes down to this. If there were an up or down majority rule vote on health reform, including the public option, it would probably pass the Senate. The only way it could be stopped is if Republicans block a vote, and the only way Republicans can block a vote is if they get a Democrat to help them do that, if they get a Democrat to join with them to block the vote, if they get a Democrat to filibuster with them. Now, a number number of influential blogs on the left, like Fire Dog Lake and Daily Coast, uh, recognized this rather early in the debate as a critical factor as to whether or not health reform passes. And they have raised now a useful point. If there is a single instance in Senate history of a senator voting to filibuster against his or her own party, his or her own party which would otherwise have been able to block that filibuster, if there is a single instance of it in history, nobody can find it. Again, I'm not a betting person, but if I was, this information would make me more likely to bet on health reform passing, and a public option being part of what passes. It would make me more likely to bet on that to know that a Democrat would have to do something that extreme, that historically unprecedented, in order to side with Republicans to kill it.
4: Think about it. It's very strange how we do insurance in our country, including, for example, the fact that most of us do not buy our own insurance. Our employers buy it for us. Whatever we're doing, it's not working so great. Health costs are rising so fast that they're threatening our entire economy. A third of all health care is waste, unnecessary procedures and tests, according to the Dartmouth Atlas of Health. How did we get here? Alex Bloomberg and Adam Davidson, they've been looking into that.
8: The more you study the roots of our modern healthcare system, the more you realize that nobody ever planned for it to be this way. What we have right now is the result of lots of historical accidents over the last hundred
9: years. So let's start at the beginning, at the turn of the last century, and get a sense of what healthcare looked like, let's say, circa 1900. In a lot of ways, the world then was starting to look like the one we have today. There were electric lights going up in cities. Henry Ford produced the first car made in Detroit. The Boston Marathon was already four years old. But
8: healthcare, healthcare was still basically stuck in the Middle Ages. Some doctors in the U.S. were still using leeches and bleeding people. There were medicines to mask your symptoms and relieve
9: your pain, but there was nothing that could actually cure you. And hospitals, at least what we would think of as a hospital, they didn't really even exist. There were things by that name, but they were basically poor houses for the sick, dark, dirty places where the indigent went to die. But you know, there was a big plus side. healthcare was cheap. It was really, really cheap. They might kill you, but they didn't charge you very much to do it. The average person spent five dollars a year on health care, even back then. That wasn't very much. That's less than a hundred bucks a year in today's dollars. So, how did we get from that system, that pre-modern
8: system, to our current healthcare system? We got there in four simple steps.
9: Step one: start curing some illnesses. This year is the hundredth anniversary of a remarkable discovery. 1909, the very first drug ever to actually cure an illness. There's something called salversan, a treatment for syphilis, and it was different from the usual potions and nostrums. With salversan, you took a pill and then you weren't sick anymore. More of these medicines followed and once
8: healthcare actually starts to work, it launches a revolution. In the 1910s and the 1920s, people start expecting their doctors to actually know how to cure them, to actually
9: have an education from some decent medical school, maybe even to have a medical license. Melissa Thomason is an economic historian at Miami University in Ohio. She focuses on the history of modern healthcare, care, and she says... The medical revolution was especially apparent
10: in hospitals. Hospitals inst- have a radical transformation in the early part of the 20th century. So that instead of being these poor houses, these almshouses, where unwed mothers and people with no family go, you know, their hospitals are actually marketing themselves as places to have babies, do appendectomies, take your tonsils out. They're focusing on generally things with happy outcomes, painting themselves as clean and full of sunshine. And, and not
9: a dark Victorian place for poor people to die.
10: Exactly. So, two
9: points. All these clean hospitals with educated doctors and effective medicines, they cost more. Also, since they actually work, more and more people start using them. The cost to provide healthcare is increasing, the demand for healthcare is increasing, all of which means healthcare is now more expensive.
8: A lot more. Which brings us to step two of how you get to
9: our modern healthcare system. Step two have a Great Depression. It's hard to imagine what our modern health care system would be like if it wasn't for the Great Depression. By the 1920s, even before the crash, the cost of health care had gotten so high that a lot of people stopped going to the hospital unless they were so sick they had no choice.
8: An official at Baylor University Hospital in Dallas, Texas, noticed that most of their hospital beds were going empty every night because of that high cost. But he also noticed that Americans, on average, were spending more on cosmetics than on medical care. He said specifically, I have the quote right here, We spend a dollar or so at a time for cosmetics and do not notice the high cost. The ribbon counter clerk can pay 50 cents, 75 cents, or a dollar a month. Yet it would take about
9: 20 years to set aside a large hospital bill. So Baylor Hospital wanted to figure out how to get ribbon counter clerks and anyone else they could find in Dallas to pay for health care like they pay for lipstick, a tiny bit every month.
8: Baylor started small. They offered a deal to a group of public school teachers in Dallas. They told them, you pay us $6 a year, that's just 50 cents a month, cheaper than Rouge, and we'll give you up to 21 days of hospital visits a year. The math was simple. In any given year, only a
9: few of the teachers would need a hospital visit. A few hospitals copied the Baylor approach, and then the depression hit. Almost every hospital in the country saw their patient load disappear. All their patients were broke. So the Baylor idea became hugely popular. And eventually, it got a name, Blue Cross. Again, Melissa Thomason.
10: The genius in marketing this by Blue Cross is marketing it to groups of workers. You know, when I actually started studying this stuff, I got interested in it because I wondered why we have an employment-based health insurance plan. It doesn't seem very logical, but it comes right out of Blue Cross selling insurance to groups of people who probably wouldn't need it, that is, people who were healthy enough to work.
9: I see. So how did that work? Did like Blue Cross representatives went around to factories and and what
10: right, did they do? Right, exactly. They went around to factories. Here, give your employees, you know, this benefit. And it appealed to corporations then because you know in the 20s and the 30s is the great period of corporate welfare capitalism too. You know, employers want to improve their workers' lives. You know, they're starting to offer other benefits like pensions and group life insurance at this time too.
9: Baylor plan, this Blue Cross plan, fulfilled two goals. It got people spending their money on health care, and it also got them to use health care more, to visit the hospital, to see it as a place where you'd go even if you weren't at death store.
8: By the middle of the Depression, there are Blue Cross programs in most states. So by the start of World War II, this employer-based health insurance is spreading. But still, only around 9% of Americans have it. It's still pretty obscure. It's nothing like our modern system. To get to our modern system, you need another step. Step
9: three, go to war. If the Great Depression inadvertently inspired employer-based health insurance, World War II accidentally spread the idea everywhere. Again, economic historian Melissa Thomason.
10: The war economy is an entirely different ballgame. I mean, think of government rationing on all levels, and so what they tell people is you can't, you legally cannot raise prices, you can't raise wages. At the same time, lots of people are are joining the military, and. And labor is scarce. So you can't find workers. Can you imagine in today's environment? You can't find workers who can work for you. You can't lure them by increasing wages.
9: And at the same time, you need to produce enormous amounts of stuff for the war effort. Exactly.
10: <laughs> you know, so what's a poor employer to do? They, they turn to fringe benefits, and they just started offering more and more generous health insurance plans and pensions and everything else, actually.
9: So you would say, Rosie, come work at my riveting factory because I can offer you uh, this uh, boutique insurance package versus... Exactly. The war sets the stage for step four, the final step in the transformation to the healthcare system we have today. This step plays out over a number of years and it starts, like all the other steps, almost completely by accident in a bureaucrat's office at the Internal Revenue Service. Now, this bureaucrat is one of the key figures, it turns out, in our American health insurance saga, but his or her name has been lost to history. What we do know is in 1943, this bureaucrat, or possibly a panel of bureaucrats, we don't even know that, made a routine ruling, possibly in response to a question from an accountant at some company. The ruling was, at least in some cases, employers don't have to pay taxes on health insurance premiums for their workers. Now, this ruling it was actually vaguely worded and pretty confusing, but the response was huge because what it seemed to imply was you get a huge tax break for offering health insurance to your workers.
8: Now, I want to jump in here and really focus on this because this is such a perfect case study in how we get a health system that nobody ever planned for. Accountants notice that they can get their firms a tax break, so more and more employers get in on the deal. Soon, they start demanding the government set it into law. And in 1954, Congress does just that. They pass the updated Internal Revenue Code, which clearly and unambiguously states employers don't have to pay taxes on health
9: insurance premiums. And if you don't think a tax law change can have a huge impact on health care, Melissa Thomason has some data for you, pal. Just look at how the number of people with employer-based health insurance changes over time.
10: You you start from... 9% 9% of the population in 1940 to 63% of the population in 1953 wow. I mean, everybody starts getting in on it. It just grows like gangbusters and by the 19 by the 1960s, you know, roughly 70% of the population is covered by some kind of private what the AMA would say voluntary health insurance plan.
9: So employer-based health insurance, which only started because Baylor University was able to sell to teachers in Texas, and which spread because of government price controls and tax breaks, that became our system.
10: Employer-based insurance is a horrible system. I mean, why would you want your employer buying your health insurance? Why on earth would you want your employer buying your groceries? You certainly wouldn't want that.
8: Just imagine it. Your employer has a contract with a grocery store. You go in, you pay your $20 copay, and then you get to take whatever you want. You'd probably go home with a lot more groceries, and
9: you wouldn't skimp on the luxuries. Why get hot dogs when you can have lobster? And from the grocery store's point of view, it would have no incentive to keep prices down. Your plan is paying the bill. Pretty soon they might get so high that people without employer-provided food plans could no longer afford to eat They'd call Congress, demand universal food coverage.
8: To economists like Thomason, that's exactly the system we have with health. We, the consumers, are totally separated from the cost of what we're consuming. We get tests and procedures we don't need because, well, why not? We're not paying for it a la carte. Our employer is paying for part of it. Our government is
9: paying for part of it through those tax incentives. Melissa Thomason says that what we have combines the worst of the market and the worst of government. Markets are usually really good at controlling costs. When they work best, products come into existence, like cell phones or stockings. They start expensive, and then they get cheaper and better. But markets don't guarantee that everyone can afford the things they need. Government can be good at that, ensuring universal access. But when you're paying for everybody, it's hard to control costs. For Melissa Thomason, she says that either extreme, a competitive market system where consumers know what price they're paying, what they're getting, which would probably drive the price of healthcare down, Or a government-run system, which would cover everyone, would be better than the accidental mixture that we have today. A really expensive system that doesn't cover us all.
1: Grayson said uh, Republicans want you to die quickly. That's their plan for health care reform. Uh, Now he was referring to the Republicans being uh, standard bearers for what the health care insurance companies want to do. And that they're basically in the back pockets of the lobbyists and they agree with everything that the health care insurance industry has pushed and fought against. And that the industry uh, generally wants you to die quickly so they don't have to pay as much money. Uh, Now of course he took a lot of uh, heat for that. Uh, but uh, we see the story of Ian Pearl now, and you begin to realize, well, maybe he's not that far off. See, Ian has uh, muscular dystrophy, and uh, back when he was born in 1972, uh, they didn't give him much of a chance of survival, certainly for very long. But he's a fighter, so he fought, and, um, and he went to high school. He was, in fact, uh, voted the president of his high school. And he leads a perfectly functional life uh, up into this very moment. Uh, No thanks to the health care insurance companies, and the one that covers him. Uh, They, uh, for him to survive, he needs a machine to breathe through, and round the uh, clock, nursing care. So he can't do it by himself. Uh, That seems fairly obvious, right? And luckily for him, his dad had worked at a company where they had uh, Guardian uh, Life Insurance, and uh, they covered home nursing care, and they did not have a permanent cap on lifetime uh, coverage So, perfect. He had insurance. He needed insurance, his dad, right, for the son that he wound up having with some health issues. And that's why you buy insurance. Everything worked out just right. Of course, until Guardian decided, we got to get rid of this guy, and we got to get rid of uh, people like him. Now, that seems harsh. How do we know that? Well, what Ian did when they tried to drop him was he did a lawsuit. Because they didn't just drop him, they all of a sudden changed the plan. And they announced to everybody, oh, by the way, the plan that you bought and that you paid for all these years is no longer the same plan. Now, we don't have perma- uh, nursing home care, and we don't have no permanent cap. We do have a permanent cap. It's a weird way I just said that. <laughs> In other words, we're going to cap your uh, expenses, and then that's it. So if this actually applied to Ian, they would literally take his breathing device away because it costs too much and they would not provide him a nurse, and he would die. He would die. Okay, now, it, it, even as I say it, it sounds like, well, I mean, that sounds like it's a bit much. But if you don't let the guy breathe, he will die. I mean, I'm not trying to demagogue the issue. That's just the fact of Ian's situation, right? And it, it costs a lot of money. And again, that's why you buy insurance. And his family doesn't have anywhere near the money uh, needed to keep him alive. Now maybe I don't know Republicans in the healthcare industry think, well, then sad day for him, take him off the thing and let him die. But I thought they were pro-life. I was pretty sure that they were pro-life and that they were concerned about death panels, right? So how did we find out what Guardian uh, uh, Life Insurance Company actually thinks? Well, in a the lawsuit, they found internal memos, and the memos describe people like Ian, including specifically Ian, as uh, and patients that have muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis brain injury and paralysis, they described them as, quote, dogs and train wrecks. And they tried to figure out a way to get rid of them. To dump them from coverage because they were too costly. Well, you could understand because Guardian, you know, was in a lot of trouble and they weren't making a profit. Oh, wait a minute. Turns out they were. In the year 2008, as they're doing this to Ian Pearl, uh, Guardian reported seven and a half billion dollars in revenue a uh, net income income profit of 437 million dollars could they afford to pay the insurance that they were supposed to pay according to their contract yes they for Ian and for everybody else and they would still make a profit but they wanted a bigger profit and you know 437 million just wasn't enough and you know how much how little capital they had left in 2008 they only had billion dollars left in capital. Could they afford to pay for Ian Pearl as they promised his parents when they did the contract and as they promised all their insurance holders? Yes, they definitely could afford it. They just didn't want to because they were dogs and train wrecks and they wanted to dump them so they could make more money. Now if you trust your private insurance to look out for your best interest, well you're just not paying attention. That's not how it works. Capitalism has wonderful uh, parts to it, but we have to understand how it works, what the motivations are, what the incentives are. And do we want to apply it to certain life and death situations? Do we want to apply it to your local fire department, where they say, well, you know what? We didn't make enough of a profit this year. If we had made 500 million instead of 400 million, maybe we wouldn't let those people burn to death. But it just didn't make sense for us to cover that fire. It cost too much. Twelve people burned alive in it. Who cares? We made a bigger profit. Now, we don't allow that. That's not how we do it, right? We have ask the government to do it because there are some things the government does better and some things the, uh, the, the private uh, sector does better, right? Now, you can still make an argument that the private sector does this better, but can we at least not have a, cho- can we at least have a choice and say, hey, you know what? What if I bought a public option uh, where I pay my premiums and the government says, you know what? I'm not going to let you die. I'm going to honor my contracts. And since I don't have to make these obscene profits, it's actually going to be cost less for you. It's going to be what it's supposed to be, insurance. You know, we all pay into it, and then if somebody needs it and needs care that costs a lot of money, well, that's where you get the money from. That's how insurance is supposed to work. Look, we just did the story uh, of the little girl, uh, Aislinn Bates, uh, two years old. The insurance company says she's too skinny. Uh, we did the story of baby Alex, Uh, he's four months old, they say he's too fat. So they're not going to cover your babies if they're too skinny or they're too fat, they're not going to cover you if you're too sick, uh, or you might potentially get sick, or if you're, in another story we did, if your mom was sick, if your mom had breast cancer, they're not going to cover you because your mom's pre-existing condition. They're not going to cover you if they find out later that you had acne, uh, but now you have cancer, well you didn't report your acne. They're looking for every possible way to not cover you. You know why? Because then they make more money. Duh! Okay, that's the incentive system that we have set up. And you could even make an argument, don't hate the player, hate the game. Well, I do hate the game. That's why we want to change it, so that American people have a real option for real insurance that does cover them. How can you look at all these stories? and still say nope I think private insurance is on top of it and I think I am positive that if I get sick they'll cover me you think that you really don't understand anything about how the system is set up how capitalism works what the motivations of these companies are what their fiduciary responsibility is their responsibility to their shareholders is to cover as little people as possible and that means you and to take as much money from you as possible you like this system You just don't understand how the world works. You're going to get hosed in a big way, then you're going to come crying later. But then it's going to be too late.
3: There's new information to report tonight about one of the country's most aggressive opponents of health reform, the grassroots-ish group, Americans for Prosperity, whose President Tim Phillips we hosted on this show last night. Americans for Prosperity has been barnstorming through Southern states over the past few days as part of its Hands Off My Healthcare bus tour. I interviewed Mr. Phillips last night in the hopes of trying to clarify who he is and who's funding him to do campaigns like this. To clarify who this group actually represents when they're out in the country saying they're grassroots, just folks, against health reform. My interview with Mr. Phillips has received a lot of attention today, particularly for the way that it ended. But one thing that happened in the heated closing of our interview has been factually clarified today, and I think it's important to make sure we get this on the air. Um, first, here's what's ha- here's what happened last night. I just want to know who you are, and I want America to know sure. who you are. And I have to tell you, because we're making this about you and me, is that I personally think that you and the folks who do what you do are a parasite who gets fat on Americans' fears, and I hope That's that America
11: hopeful and I know. I you know.
3: I know right this sounds hopeful. That. That's why I paused before I and said it because I wanted wrong. to make sure that I and wanted you're to say
11: wrong. it. you disparaging want, a lot of Americans want, who are out there fighting the good fight. No, Rachel. I, no, it's different. Sure it's are. different because
3: you're being paid to do it, and what you're doing we are you, you, you guys like me no. and David and When you signed Adrian on, you well. took money to say some really disgusting things in the past, like you did about those Chinese workers in the Marianas Islands, and we know who paid you to do it then. It was guys like Ralph Reed, who should have gone to prison, and guys like Jack Abramoff, who did go to prison. Now you're pushing stuff that is as disgusting, and the only difference is that we don't
11: Standing know this time. Standing up for the health care freedoms of Americans is no, disgusting? Di- wow. well, no, but, wow. saying, well, but having speakers at your event that. saying
3: that Obamacare is like Pol Pot and and, and I Holocaust. I have that.
11: Right, but your speakers have, and your are organizing. who was at an event that was co-sponsored, by us. We right. are not control of the podium. Again, if you want to pick out one of 600 rallies, I've asked you to come before. Come with us on the road and see these people. I these don't want to help
3: promote you, Tim. I don't. I think what you're doing is you're getting fat, literally financially fat on American spheres. And, and, what, I hope and what are you getting is fat that
11: a, financially to do, Rachel? You're, you're doing to it do to do attack a new show. Us. And I'm oh, trying to, a to a tell people show? who you are. Come on. Attacking no. and, us, please. And what I hope <laughs> is that people half. stop
3: <laughs> falling for your stick and stop being so afraid. And that your, your industry that takes money to do this stuff and scare people and make money off it as a, I think, Republican and corporate funded thing. I hope that your industry proverbially starves because we stop being so afraid. So I feel like I got to say that to your face because it's what's burning under the surface while I'm asking you these questions. I can tell you're pretty upset tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm mad about what you do. I think
11: you're really bad for the country. Yeah, well, you have every right to think that. Okay. So
3: in the midst of all of that, something was mentioned very quickly there that, that is important and we need to clarify. You heard Tim Phillips there try to sort of muddy the waters about something that his group, Americans for Prosperity, has frankly been attacking me and this show's reporting about since we first had him on the program. Something that happened in Pueblo, Colorado this summer. A speaker at one of these Americans for Prosperity anti-health reform rallies compared Democrats' health reform plans to Pol Pot and Hitler and the Final Solution. We've played this tape before of this speaker on this show, and Americans for Prosperity has not been happy about it.
2: If this new Obama Care program comes to fruition, when you reach 65 and every five years thereafter, you're going to have to have a counseling session with some uh, some federal uh, airhead. Part of this process is called end-of-life counseling, and part of the end-of-life counseling can be an end-of-life order. What does that mean, end-of-life? Another word for that is death. Order. What's another word for that? A sentence. Now, bear, you folks review with me a little bit. as I recall, Stalin in 1920s issued... About 20 million end-of-life orders for his fellow Russians. Pol Pot did it uh, during the Vietnam War. He ended issued about 2 million end-of-life orders. Adolf Hitler issued 6 million end-of-life orders. He called his program the Final Solution. I kind of wonder what we're going to call ours.
3: The last time we played that tape on this show, Americans for Prosperity went after me in this show online. AFP's policy director, Phil Kirpin, asserted that the entire video was a fraud. He said it was a video created by the union SEIU and that what it showed was definitively not an Americans for Prosperity event. See, was not an AFP event. Mr. Kirpin is wrong. And their attacks on me for airing that footage are also wrong. Let me make this clear once and for all. No matter how they try to muddy the waters, no matter how they try to attack me for saying it, no matter how uncomfortable it makes them about their own tactics and what they're trying to do to scare Americans about health reform, the Pol Pot, Hitler, final solution, health reform is really a secret genocide dude, was speaking at an Americans for Prosperity event. Do you want proof? Well, here's the bloody red handprint bus rolling up to that event in Pueblo, Colorado that day. Here's another speaker being introduced at that same event.
6: Uh, There's a, a fellow co-worker of mine and a man who has been working hard on this issue, Jeff Crank, come on up here.
3: Jeff Crank, come on up here. Who's Jeff Crank? He's the Colorado State Director for Americans for Prosperity. Here was Jeff Crank rallying the crowd at that event.
6: We have traveled in that bus today. Uh, we started off in Fort Collins this morning. Uh, we had 400 people there who signed our petition. We came. Uh, we went to Greeley. We had 350 in Greeley. And right now here in Pueblo, we're at 151 people who have signed the petition.
3: We traveled in that bus to Fort Collins, to Greeley, and now we're here in Pueblo. You want to see the official calendar of events from that day from the Americans for Prosperity website? Well, Fort Collins, Greeley, Pueblo. And who was one of the speakers after Mr. Crank at that event? Yeah, it was Mr. Pol Pot, Hitler Final Solution dude. And he wasn't just some guy who grabbed the mic during the event, he was an official speaker at the event. Jeff Crank, Americans for Prosperity's Colorado director, was reportedly standing in the wings as Mr. Pol Pot was waxing poetic about how health reform is just like the Holocaust. We have to give our thanks to Rafael Rivera who's the videographer who shot that event for sending along that footage clarifying that no matter how much they want to disown it this is what Americans for Prosperity is doing around the country to scare Americans about health reform. And Americans for Prosperity, Mr. Phillips, is right. They have every right to do what they're doing. And. I, and every other other American, has every right to ask who they are representing when they do these things. They're not disclosing their funders. They're trying to scare Americans about health reform. They're disavowing their own tactics when they get called out on them. And the First Amendment is paramount. It's first. You have every right to say whatever claptrap you want to say in this country, and to try to exploit and scare Americans for any cause you think you can wring a profit out of. But we also have every right to report on what you're doing, and we will. No matter how much you try to get us not to.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, as I'm sure everyone understands, this show has uh, some sort of a production schedule th- that's in place. And so, if news breaks a little bit too late, there's really just no way to get it in the show. So, this show being about healthcare, I would have loved to have some information, you know, up to date within the last uh, day or so. But I I just I don't have clips from from anything that recently. So I just need to tell you that uh, very early this week, as I was putting the show together, I started seeing murmurings of movement. On the public option in the Senate. You know, stories are coming out like Harry Reid is really pushing for it. What they're going to go for is a public option with the opt out amendment that, you know, allows individual states to opt out of the nationwide public option. So then, of course, if it's in the final Senate bill, it'll definitely be in the House bill and then they'll match it up that way. But if it's in both, Bills, then there's no way it can come out during reconciliation. So, you know, I had this healthcare show all ready to go, and uh, and didn't have time to add in that information. So, I just wanted to to throw that in. I'm sure there will be more news on that coming up in the next week or so, because um, it's not like I'm not going to be doing another several episodes on healthcare before this is all over. So we'll, we'll be getting all the details. And uh, when it's available and when I hear more, I'll, uh, I'll put it in the show for you. So before I go, all I want to do is uh, thank a couple of members. Uh, Justin D. signed up as a member on August 24th, and Janet B. signed up on September 7th. Huge thanks to both of them and all the members. Of course, I just couldn't do the show the way I have been without them. I'd have to go out and get myself another real job. So, that is it for today. You can support the show by telling five friends about it, becoming a member for a little less than five bucks a month, and leaving a five star review in the iTunes Music Store. Stay subscribed to the show any way you like. I have enhanced and MP3 only formats available via iTunes or any podcatcher of your choice. You can access the show on your smartphone via Stitcher.com. You can sign up to be notified of every new episode by email or even have CDs of the show delivered to you or your friends and family by the good old socialized post office each week. Stay connected between the shows by joining me at twitter.com slash best of the left and facebook.com slash best of the left where I post updates of some of the best progressive material I find during my weekly research for the show. Of course members of the show also have access to the raw feed podcast which delivers audio and video clips to your computer ready to be transferred to whatever portable device works for you. Links to the music and sources used in this and every episode are available in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members and donors from bestoftheleft.com.
3: Tell black and white you took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only make a